Welcome to the Talking Immigration Podcast. Immigration is a complex issue. Most of us have strong emotions, but don't actually know the details of how immigration actually works. In this podcast, I interview immigration experts to teach us about the types of immigration, limits, costs, enforcement, and more. I'm Katarina, your host. Let's talk immigration. Today we are talking about employment-based visas with immigration attorney Michael Bailey. Thanks for being with us, Michael. Will you tell us a bit about your experience with immigration? Hi, yes. I have been practicing. I'm in my 10th year of practice, and I worked for the two largest corporate immigration law firms uh, in the country. And during that time, I've done exclusively employment-based immigration. Excellent. So I thought we'd start this episode a little different. I thought we would start with a little bit of trivia for all of our listeners. What do Justin Bieber, Daniel Ratcliffe, Dirk Nowitzki, Charlize Theron, and an unknown percentage of Silicon Valley's workforce have in common? And as many of you may have guessed, based on the title of this episode, they all have or have had in the past some form of employment-based immigration work visa. So, Michael, in general, can you tell us what is this broad type of visa known as an employment-based visa? Well, employment-based immigration, there's a lot of different categories. And in terms of immigration, we, we want to we talk about a couple of key concepts. Um, one would be immigrant versus non-immigrant. So that's going to be immigrant is somebody who's coming here permanently to reside, to get a green card and possibly citizenship someday. And then there's non-immigrant, and that's somebody here who's, who's here temporarily. And within both of those, you have employment-based uh, processes. So uh, probably when you think employment-based immigration, you think more of the non-immigrant side, like um, so you mentioned some very famous people that would be here on non-immigrant visas and then you mentioned Silicon Valley, and that's where you would see um, what's you know very common: the H-1Bs and the Ls, and and a lot of the uh, typical employment-based uh, visa categories. And so, even though these are all people who are foreign-born, non-immigrant and immigrant employment visas are all—it's just a way of saying permanent versus a non-permanent work visa. Yeah, so there's the permanent and there's the non-permanent. And then um, I think another key concept is the concept of sponsorship. So in our immigration system, we have another three different categories of immigration. We have sponsored immigration that's sponsored by by an employer, immigration that's sponsored by a family member. And then we have the exceptions, which there's many of them where it's uh, there's no sponsor or self-sponsored petitions. But when we say employment-based immigration, what we're saying is that there's an employer who's a sponsor who's saying, I want to hire this foreign worker. And then someone, then there has to be a grant of benefits that gets them this. The visa piece of that, does that mean that someone can stay or what, what exactly does that mean? Well, in the non-immigrant side, we have what's called the alphabet soup. And the alphabet soup is basically every letter of the alphabet has, uh, or most of the letters of the alphabet have the have a 
visa status assigned to them. So, for example, a tourist visa would be a B visa. Um, and a work-based visa would be like an H-1B or an L visa. Can you just give us a little bit of background? So what's kind of the historical context for these types of work-based visas? Was there any moment in time where this began or kind of can you place this for us in terms of immigration law as we know it today? Sure. Um, the current apparatus of of immigration starts with the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1952. Um, and then in 1952, that sets the basic framework with all of the alphabet soup and whatnot. And then you see some major reform efforts in 1986, and then again in 1990, and then the biggest one is in 2002 that kind of reorganized everything and recapitulated it. And that's that's the framework of what we see today. So it, the U.S. has a, a long history with immigration before it became a form, it became formalized um, structures. But really, 1952 is where we start to see what the modern systems look like. And prior to that, did people who were coming into the United States to work, did they need visas? No, prior to that, there was no different categories and there was no benefits. There was simply inspection. Um, you would come to the United States, you would be inspected and you would either be let in or not let in. Um, but before, that was before um, the federal government had finally taken over all of the immigration processes and started consolidating them and formalizing them and then making them a matter of um, administrative law. Can you talk a little bit about all these different types of work visas with maybe a few examples of kind of the industries that those would serve? Sure. One of the biggest ones is H-1B. Uh, a lot of folks have heard of this one. It's for professionals where the position requires at least a bachelor's degree and that the individual, the beneficiary, has to have at least a bachelor's degree or more in a related occupation. And then there's other requirements like the employer has to um, post a labor condition application that puts the uh, workers on that work site on notice that there's an H-1B worker and that they, they also have to pay the prevailing wage. Um, so that's your H-1B is your general work visa for a professional. So if you're somebody who, if you're a foreign national, you say, I want to go to the United States, probably it's going to be an H-1B uh, if your job is one that requires at least a bachelor's degree. Another big one is the L visa. And this one is for intercompany transfers. That's when somebody has worked for a company outside the United States for at least a year, and they're transferring to the United States to work in a similar capacity, either as a manager or a specialized knowledge professional. So that's going to be somebody like with really inside knowledge of the company. So that's H-1Bs and Ls. And then there's other uh, visa categories for um, agricultural workers and um, hotel workers. And so it really spans the gamut of skills down from, you know, um, what we would call low skill jobs all the way up to the super technical and the high skill. And there's even a category O-1 for outstanding uh, achievements in 
science, uh, business, and also in uh, the motion picture industry. So those would be things like the the actors or maybe like the Pulitzer Prize winners or something, somebody like yeah. that who might come to teach, for example. That's right. Okay. What about musicians on tours or professional athletes? Are they included in this category? Yes. They would get uh, a P visa. A P visa is for performances or for professional athletes, typically. And this allows them to come to the United States temporarily to engage in a performance or a series of performances or events. So like a soccer tournament or like a we've, we've seen folks, um, surfers that were coming to test out um, new surfing equipment, for example. Yeah, interesting. You, you kind of don't imagine when you see when you go to a concert or you go to a performance of some kind that anyone who might be performing but isn't a citizen would have had to have gone through this visa process. I think we we tend to only think of like the ag workers or maybe the the high professionals in a, in a tech field of some sort. So how do these employment-based visas work? Can you walk us through the process from the beginning? Like you mentioned something like if you are a professional out of town and you want to work in the United States, you have to find an employer. Does that mean you you have to wait in your own country or how does it work? Well, typically speaking, immigration is a benefit, and you're going to apply through it through the USCIS and get an approval through the USCIS. And then depending on where you are in the world, if you are in the United States already, you could do what's called a change of status. So this happens a lot when you're an F1 student and you come out of school, you get a job, and then the employer sponsors you, changes your status to H1B. That allows you to work in a prescribed manner for a specific job in a specific location for a specific period. And an F1 student is just a foreign student? That's right. A student, um, when you think of foreign students, they would be on an F1 or a J1 visa, for example. And so if you're outside the United States, then you get an approval notice. Then you take that approval notice and you go to a consulate or an embassy and the United States will issue a a visa and then you can enter pursuant to that non-immigrant H1B visa or whatever the category is. I'm curious about, do you know the types of businesses and industries that use work visas the most? Well, we tend to see computer science and engineering firms that, that are to be heavy and too heavy with uh, foreign labor to, they supplement their labor force with uh, from U.S. workers with foreign labor. And from my experience, I've seen that be up to upwards of 30% or or even more in some instances, depending on the firm. Um, so that's when you, that's for professionals. And then for the lower skilled jobs, you would see like agricultural workers or hotel staff. Uh, those types of industries are heavy, uh, heavily rely upon foreign labor. Are there limits to the number of these types of work visas that are available? I mean, I, I guess my assumption would be that it should be based on employment need, but maybe not. Some of them are. The H-1B has a limitation that the government's only going to issue 85,000 new H-1Bs every year. And um, the demand has exceeded that every year for many years now. And so folks have to apply in the first possible moment. Um, Other visa categories 
don't have any numerical limitation as far as how many can come into the United States, like an L visa or an O visa, there's no limitation, but the standards to get those visas are a lot higher. So um, the government doesn't feel the need to limit them by any such quota. And remind us again, the L or the intercompany and the O or? And the O is for the outstanding. O, think outstanding. That's going to be your outstanding researchers and performers. Sure. That makes sense that we wouldn't want to limit that. Um, A common and I think valid concern that some people hold is that employment-based visas take jobs from U.S. citizens. You know, you hear that in the media. You, I think people just naturally sort of worry about that. Can you speak to that from your experience? Do do businesses have to prove they can't fulfill that position with citizens? So generally, so the short answer is from my experience, that's not what I've observed, but my experience is purely anecdotal. So to really delve deep into that and answer that question, you could look at the numbers. But from my experience, the employers have a real incentive to hire U.S. workers, and that is they don't have to go through all this non-immigrant stuff and have to petition the government to make to allow the worker to work there, and they don't have to keep following up with that. So there's no labor market tests required or for most of the processes, but there's a financial incentive for the company to not hire a foreign national or to look for somebody who already has work authorization in the United States because it's totally free to employ those people. Now, other processes, remember we talked about immigrant and non-immigrant. Now, if you just want to hire a non-immigrant, the government doesn't doesn't require you to go through labor certification for most processes. And those are those are temporary. Right, the temporary folks. Cuz the the attitude is, well, if they're temporary, it's it's not as it's not as big of a deal. But when they go to when they want to get sponsor the employee for a green card that is permanent residence, then yes, the standard process is you must go through labor certification. And labor certification is a labor market test to see if there's any qualified U.S. workers for that for any given role. And only if there is not can the company then continue sponsoring the individual for a green card. And so, so there are labor market protections put in place embedded into the immigration structures, but only certain ones are require you the employer to directly advertise for US workers before it can proceed with any given process. And you talked about the financial burden that employers would have to pay if they want to sponsor foreign foreign workers. What is the cost of a work visa? Well, it can vary quite a bit. In any given event, you're not going to spend less than five or six thousand, up to much, much more, on an employee if they if they want to hire them. Um, you just by the incurring the the government filing fees and the legal fees associated with getting their work authorization. The employers are going to spend quite a bit of money just to get the person to work there. They're going to have to spend more money um, to keep them working there over time. And then if they want to sponsor them for a green card, they're going to have to go even further. So some processes like a green card process from start to finish could cost upwards of $20,000. Um, that's that's all expenses. That's going to be the costs associated with doing the labor market test, the filing fees for the government with just a green card filing fee itself for one person is $1,225. You know, you add a husband and wife and a child or two, and that's just the government filing fees alone. 
So it can the costs for this sort of thing can climb quite a bit uh, for employers. So there's definitely a financial incentive for them to stick with U.S. workers if possible. And now, again, you could go back on that and say, well, the employers, you know, they can spend 10 grand on you because they're saving 20 grand on wages. They're going to pay you less, and that's the difference. You, you could make that argument. Um, that's not how I've seen it play out. I've seen it where foreign nationals get paid commensurate with their counterparts. So I haven't seen that be a problem. You mentioned potentially paying for a spouse or children. So family of those who have employment-based visas, they're able to join them as part of that visa or how does that work? Yeah. So when you have, what we have is a, a primary and dependent situation. So if you have a, what we would call the primary applicant, they would be the H-1B holder and their dependents, for example, would be H-4s. And are they able to work, do other things or... Some non-immigrant visa categories allow for spouse work authorization. Um, some of it, most of the time, you have to apply for it affirmatively and get an actual employment authorization document, an EAD card. This is a general work authorization that comes associated with several different processes. So the short answer to your question is that when when someone's a non-immigrant, their spouse can get derivative non-immigrant statuses but most of the time their dependents cannot work only in some situations can the dependents actually work in an earlier episode that we had about family visas we learned about wait times that can sometimes span 10 to 20 plus years are there wait times like this for work visas yeah it depends on the type um you know if you're trying to get an h1b it could be several years before you get in just because the like i said there's a um the demand exceeds the, the number available each year. And so, you know, if you don't get it, you don't get one. Like this year, I think there was like 200,000 or more um, applications for 85,000 available. So there's quite a few people who didn't get in and you can only apply once a year. So that can kind of stretch out. If that's the non-immigrant side, on the immigrant side, when you talk about waiting for a green card, the times can vary quite a bit because of the preference system. And only 140,000 green cards are allocated each year to employment-based green cards. And so then that's all divided up amongst the different categories. So the different categories in the different com countries of, of immigrants so that is to say, when you have a lot more people from different countries applying, it creates a backlog. So, for example, somebody from the UK can get a green card in a year and a half, two years or so, if they go through labor certification and all of the processing and everything. Somebody that is from India or China, if you're from China, you might have to wait five years just to be able to apply. And then you've got another year. Or from India, and the same, you might have to wait upwards of 10, 12, 13 years before you can apply for your green card. And that's because the demand is so high and the way the government allocates the available green cards. By country as well as by category. Right, yes. Can you talk a little bit about the length of the work visa? So obviously if it's a immigrant visa, it's a permanent green card. You don't have to renew that then, correct? Well, so a green card is permanent residence, but the card itself is only valid for 10 years and you'll have to renew the card. But that doesn't 
you're not gonna you're not renewing your status. The grant of lawful permanent residence has already been determined, and you're not re-adjudicating that. Now, when you get to the non-immigrant side, you get like an H-1B, and H-1B is valid for three years. At the end of that three years, you have to apply for an extension up to a six-year limitation, six years maximum, unless you've completed certain steps of the green card process, then you can go beyond that six years. But generally speaking, there's a six-year limitation, and so you have to apply for H-1B status again and still assert that you meet the minimum requirements for H-1B status. So there's another adjudication uh, rolled in there. And I'm sure that's to sort of make sure that if the labor market has changed, if citizens are able to fulfill that position now, then it would go to them, I guess. That's sort of the re- the reasoning behind that. Yeah. You know, there's, um, there's different theories about that, but definitely we saw um, the, the Trump administration put out the did away with an old rule. And the old rule was Look, if nothing's changed, really, we're going to give deference to the the prior petition. So, if the prior petition was approved, we're going to defer to that and approve this current petition. But they got rid of that rule and they started adjudicating everything as if it was brand new. It was part of the Buy American, Hire American executive order. So, presumably, it's an effort in the Trump administration to impose labor market protections uh, to protect mm-hmm. U.S. workers, like you said. For Immigrant workers, do things like minimum wage apply? Like, do they have typical workplace rights? I'm thinking, like, I wonder if those workers would be more at risk of potential harassments or things. Well, sure. They, they definitely have all the rights and responsibilities of, of regular folks, except for some limited things that, that do pertain to their nationality. That that would be like voting, for example, and and working. They can only work in the and for an H-1B, there's a specific job that's outlined, and they can only do that specific job. And so they're afforded all of those typical rights by law. But practically speaking, because their immigration um, is directly tied to their employer, they're far more cautious about their jobs typically than a U.S. worker would be. Um, well, let's not say they're far more cautious. Let's say they have an additional incentive to be more cautious because they are only in the country by virtue of this employment relationship. And if the employment relationship goes away, if they're terminated, then they have to return to their home country. Or uh, in some circumstances, they can get a different job and transfer their immigration to the different employer, but in not all circumstances. Well, thank you so much for all this information. I think it's just eye-opening to see kind of the broad reaches of employment-based immigration. I certainly didn't realize the expansive alphabet soup that there that exists. And so I think it's just nice to sort of be introduced to these different types of visas and a little bit of how they play out. Where can people learn more about you and or your practice? Well, you can check me out on LinkedIn at uh, linkedin.com slash Michael G. Bailey. And I also have a Facebook business page and uh, more marketing to come. <laughs> So that's, that's a Facebook business page. It's Michael G. Bailey, uh, attorney at law. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking Immigration. If you enjoyed it, please consider sharing with family or friends and leaving a rating or review so more people can learn about this important issue. Have a great week, everyone, and let's keep talking immigration. Immigration.